Hello and welcome to Carers Talk, the podcast for carers, where we share advice, information and carers' experiences. My name's Michelle and I'm your host, and this podcast is brought to you by Carers Trust Solly Hall. We hope you enjoy. I'll let you introduce yourself, Shelley. Hi, Michelle. So it's Shelley Collingborn here from Sydney Mitchell Solicitors. I'm one of the partners at the firm and I specialise in private clients, so dealing with wills, powers of attorney, administration of estates, court of protection work and assisting elderly clients and also some trusts and tax advice as well. Thanks, Shelley. Now, did an episode recently on wills and power of attorney. Now, what goes hand in hand with that normally within our sessions is power of attorney. Can you speak a little bit about umpire of attorney and what it is? Yeah, of course, absolutely. So as we discussed last time, wills deal with who gets your estate once you've died. Um, Powers of attorney are completely separate documents. So the current documents are called lasting powers of attorney. And in effect, these documents allow you to choose people who you know and trust, they're referred to as your attorneys, to be able to deal with and make decisions on your behalf if you're unable to make those decisions yourself. That could be due to a physical or a mental incapacity. Now, there are two types of lasting power of attorney, one that deals with property and financial affairs, and the other is health and welfare. So I'll have a quick chat about both of them, if that's okay, and just to confirm um, what both do and when they can be used. So the property and financial affairs lasting power of attorney allows you to choose attorneys, and in effect, they will be able to deal with your property and financial affairs. The lasting powers of attorneys can only be used during your lifetime. And as I said earlier, it will allow people to make decisions on your behalf. The lasting power of attorney for property and financial affairs allows your attorneys to be able to make decisions about your property and financial affairs. So in effect, it could be dealing with day-to-day things such as collecting pension, paying bills, but it could also deal with all your investments and also buying or selling property on your behalf. Now, the lasting power of attorney for property and financial affairs can be used if you've got mental capacity or you have lost mental capacity. So if, for example, physically you were unable to get out and about, um, you couldn't get to the bank, you couldn't sign things, again, your attorneys will be able to deal with things for you and at your instruction. If, however, you've lost mental capacity, um, so for example, um, something like dementia, then your attorneys will be able to step in and make decisions for you in relation to your property and to your financial affairs. The other lasting power of attorney is called health and welfare. And this power of attorney only comes into effect if you have lost mental capacity. So while you're still mentally able to make decisions about your health and your welfare, you continue to make those decisions yourself. But the type of things your attorneys could do for you if you weren't able to deal with things yourself could be day-to-day things such as who you see, what you eat, what you wear, if you needed any certain care or medical treatment, speaking to doctors on your behalf. And there's also a section within the document about life-sustaining treatment, which in effect you can choose if you wish to give your attorneys the authority to give or refuse consent to life-sustaining treatment on your behalf. So again, it's just things to consider and documents, they are extremely important. I would say they're just as important as making wills. But one thing I will always say to my clients is treat them a bit like an insurance policy. (laughs) You prepare them, you pay for them, um, you get them registered and you put them away. Hopefully never to see the light of day again. But if something happens, and particularly if something happens suddenly, the documents are there, they're ready to be used. The people that you have already chosen that you trust the most can step in and deal with things for you. And quite often we get phone calls in those situations and it's much easier when the lasting powers of attorney have been prepared. I can imagine. And 
I think a lot of the worry that some people have is that, especially with the financial side mm-hmm. of the power of attorney, you say that you can still have mental capacity. Yeah. If my mum said, okay, I want you to be my power of attorney with regard to finance and that, would I have to liaise with her? Can I just go and draw out 10 grand? <laughs> <laughs> so the last in power of attorney, first of all, it needs to be registered by the Office of the Public Guardian before it can be used. But in theory, as soon as it's registered, it can be used by the attorneys. However, um, if you have still got mental capacity, your attorneys should only be assisting you and making those decisions because, in effect, you've asked them for assistance. Yeah. So before an attorney makes a decision, they're supposed to go through that with the donor. The donor is the person who made the document. So in effect, it would be, mom, I need to draw out £10,000 or <laughs> I need to do this for you. Do you agree? Mum, because she's still got capacity, will say, no, Michelle, there's absolutely no need. I can deal with things myself. But that's part of the the regulations and sort of the authority, the, the rules that the attorneys have to follow is that before any decision they make, they should do and they should go through that with the attorney. Again, the capacity issue comes into play. Yeah. Sorry, going off on a tangent here now. Is that, again, and if we listen to the Wills podcast earlier, we spoke about capacity. Capacity is assessing whether or not somebody has the ability to make a decision. But capacity is time and issue specific. So actually, somebody may have capacity in the morning, but by the afternoon, they're tired and they don't know. But similarly, somebody may have capacity to sign a cheque, pay a bill, but they wouldn't be able to understand selling a property. So in that case, actually, the attorneys should be working with the donor. The donor should be signing the checks, making those decisions about paying bills, but then guiding the donor, helping them to make any decision. They shouldn't just be stepping in, bulldozing their way in and taking over, particularly if the donor has got mental capacity. Yeah, and I think that that is really important. It is. It it should be used as a way of empowering. Of course, and a lot of clients that I see, um, you know, will be worried by, you know, if I sign this power of attorney, it means I can't deal with things anymore. Absolutely incorrect. You still got that authority you still deal with things you still carry on as if nothing has changed but it means if you need assistance in the future or if something happens then your attorneys are there they can then step in and deal with things for you i've mentioned about the attorneys so these are the people that are appointed They've got to be people that you know and you trust to be able to deal with things. We would all like to think that's going to be family members, children, whoever, but actually it may not be. You may not have that relationship. They may have difficulties themselves and you may not want them to make those decisions. So again, it's considering who it is that you want to be your attorneys. Very important. Indeed. And again, it can be professional attorneys. So again, the partners of Sydney Mitchell will act as attorneys for clients. It may be because they've got no family or they don't want to appoint family. Yeah. But again, you've got a professional attorney involved. We would only ever step in if the client needs us to. We can do a lot of just assisting, just collecting money from the bank. Or it could be that we take over and we deal with absolutely everything. But again, it's involving the client, assisting them as much as possible. But it's making sure that who you choose, you trust them to be able to deal with things for you. And can you have more than one? Of course. So under the uh, powers of attorney, you can appoint four, you can appoint more. But to be honest, I think that can get very messy. Yeah. Um, And you can also appoint within the document replacement attorneys. So, for example, um, you could appoint, um, you know, two attorneys. But actually, if anything happens to either or both of them, 
then you can appoint somebody else to put in. So a substitute, for example, Mm. which again could be quite useful. But again, there's different ways you can appoint your attorneys. You can appoint them what's called jointly, which means every decision has to be made together. The benefit of that is knowing that one can't go and do something without the other's knowledge. However, it's quite restrictive because if something needs to be signed, both parties have to sign it. One's away on holiday and a decision has to be made, it's going to have to wait. And also if, for example, God forbid something happened to one of those attorneys, the document fails. You can appoint attorneys jointly and severally, which means they can act together or they can act separately. So again, majority of clients will go with the jointly and severally option. Yes, it means that one attorney could do something without the other's knowledge. But any decision they make has to be in the best interests of the donor, that person. Mm. But it does mean it gives that flexibility because it might be that one lives closer. Um, If one travels a lot with work, for example, it might be that one is then going to take the lead role. But my advice to clients and also to attorneys, if I'm advising them, is if you're appointed on a joint and several basis, keep each other in the loop. Keep, Keep a note of what you're doing keep records of what you're doing my advice to attorneys is to keep records of everything that they do so for example you know keeping receipts keeping notes of any decisions that have been made because if the court requests any information it's there it's readily available and it's also there's a suggestion that nothing's been hidden if the information is readily available yeah definitely it's just good practice for you know for, for yourself and also we like to think conflict doesn't happen but it does of course it does and unfortunately too many times we see it where there has been a problem mm-hmm. um, or there's going to be a problem and again i think it's ultimately i think attorneys have to remember that it's not what's best for them it's what's best for the donor the person yes. who's made the power of attorney and that's what they need to remember throughout and they have to go through things with them make sure they're happy that they understand as much as they possibly can and that they they act for that person yeah and with regard to the more health side of things Mm -hmm. i know that you mentioned that it's that comes into play when someone loses mental capacity yes so that i think that's important because it's it's someone's wishes may with regard to maybe going into a care home would that person want to be at home So it's the wishes, really, of the person who has lost the mental capacity. Of course. I mean, within the lasting power of attorney, you can include sort of preferences or instructions. Instructions are, this is what I want you to do. And that can be difficult, particularly Mm. if the court don't like the wording. Preferences is what you would like to happen. So quite often it would be, I would like to stay at home for as long as possible, or I want this to happen, or I would not like this to happen, or I would want this to happen. The difficulty with that is it's only a wish, so it's not binding. But again, I would always say to clients is have that chat with your attorneys. Make sure they know what your wishes are. Again, if the person is able to make their own decision about health and welfare, they carry on and make that decision. The other part within the document I mentioned was the life-sustaining treatment section. Now again, I always say to my clients if you're signing the section that says i would like my attorneys to have the authority to give or refuse consent to life-sustaining treatment basically life-sustaining treatment is treatment that a doctor considers necessary to keep you alive like cpr so it could be cpr it could be even so one of the examples actually on the document is if somebody had pneumonia a simple course of antibiotics would be classed as life-sustaining treatment it's a wide variety but again if you're giving that authority to your attorneys speak to them tell them what it is that you'd want Mm. some people have got very clear that they would not want to be resuscitated others would give them a clue of what it is that you'd want them to do otherwise they won't know how to be able to act and what it is that your wishes are and what you would like to happen Mm. and i think you know through this discussion i've certainly learned how important it is to 
put these things in place before? Of course, absolutely. And too many times, and unfortunately, we get the phone call from family members, which is something's happened to mom, dad, you know, auntie, uncle, whoever. They've lost capacity quite often. It's suddenly, Mm. you know, for example, after a stroke or after some sort of quick illness. And actually, there's no power of attorney in place. And at that stage, we're then having to look to make an application to Court of Protection, which is a lot more uh, time consuming, uh, very much more expensive. Yeah. And at that stage, you've lost that chance of being able to choose who it is that is going to be the person making those decisions. The court, the Court of Protection makes that decision and you've got no say in it. And that, that was another question that I was going to have is that if someone doesn't have a power of attorney, I know there's the assumption that family members would, you know, act on my behalf or, you know, my daughter, but that isn't the case, is it? It isn't, no. Unless you've got a power of attorney in place, there is nobody with the legal authority to be able to deal with and make decisions on your behalf. That's that's a simple thing of it. Um, you may have provided, for example, your bank with what's called a third party authority. So, you know, very, very general, allowing a third party to be able to access your bank accounts. But in theory, a bank can take that away at any time. And they probably will if they're made aware that somebody's lost capacity. But again, a third party authority, again, it should be, mom, I'm going to the bank to get this for you are you happy for me to do that yes Yes, I am you're using that third party authority if that person's lost the capacity you haven't got their authority anymore to be able to do that Mm -hmm. so again it's something to be aware of one thing I just wanted to mention was some carers listening may have or may have come across enduring powers of attorney so prior to the end of September 2007 you could make what's called an enduring power of attorney now you can't make these anymore lasting powers of attorney came in but if you have an enduring power of attorney provided it was all signed and completed and it's all been completed correctly these documents can still be used but you just need to be aware of what you need to do with them because they do work slightly different to lasting powers of attorney so for example under the enduring powers of attorney that only allows your attorney to deal with your property and finances. It doesn't cover anything to deal with health and welfare. And if you have got mental capacity, your enduring power of attorney does not need to be registered. But if you have lost mental capacity, or if your attorneys believe you are starting to lose mental capacity, your enduring power of attorney will need to be registered through the court. So if you've got an enduring power of attorney in place, it can still be used. Yeah. You've just got different rules and you just need to be aware of those. That's but really it, important. Yeah, but it won't cover your health and welfare. So if you've got an enduring power of attorney in place and you want to get something in place for your health and welfare, then we, you'll look at making a health and welfare lasting power of attorney. Okay. So for example, if someone didn't have any kind of power of attorney, it would go to the public? So if you have, if you've lost capacity yeah. and you haven't got a power of attorney in place, at all, you then have to, well, somebody will have to make an application to the Court of Protection. And so they're based in London and they, in effect, look after people's affairs where they haven't got capacity. You'd be making an application to be appointed as somebody's deputy. And again, as we spoke earlier, it can be as many people as needed. I, I don't think the court will allow more than four, but they may well do. And again, they can be appointed jointly or jointly and severally, as we spoke about earlier. The court appoints them. At the moment, the applications are taking about 12 months. So long. So long. And during that time, until that order is made, nobody has the legal authority to deal with that person's finances. Oh, gosh. And again, the application will be just to deal with somebody's property and finances. You can make an application to be appointed as somebody's 
health and welfare deputy, but the court are extremely reluctant to appoint those. But also, they will only tend to issue a health and welfare deputy if it's something specific. But deputies, other than how long it takes to be appointed, and unfortunately it's a lot more expensive, they're under a lot more duties under the court. So they have to provide an annual report to the court with everything that they've dealt with, down to the pounds and pence. Because the court's more involved. Of course, absolutely. Um, You are accountable to the court. You um, have to arrange for a security bond to be put in place, in effect, to protect the patient's assets. And that bond has to be paid for and renewed every year as well. Um, So it's a lot more involved. And a lot more expensive. It is, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's it's really good that obviously we have these things, you know, put in place to protect people. But I think if you want the people that you care about, who you trust, to look after you in those times, it's really worth it. Of course. And as I said earlier, treat it a bit like an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. You get your car insured, your house insured, your contents, your life but actually look at making these lasting power of attorney. They may never be needed. They go away into a, into a drawer, never to see the light of day again. But it's the if something happens yeah. and it's always suddenly. That's where there's so many times we so get a hard. phone call, of course. And actually, if you've got that lasting power of attorney in place or the enduring power of attorney, it means it's there. The people that you've chosen can step in and make those decisions for you. Yeah. Yes. What about we have carers where they're caring for someone, say they're, they're parents and they're like, they refuse. But they may be getting themselves into quite a bit of a pickle with regard to finances, but they just refuse. Is there anything that you could advise carers in that situation? To be honest, I think in that situation, it would be trying to explain to their parents, I do not have the legal authority to be able to help you deal with things. We don't want the banks to close or freeze accounts because as soon as a bank is made aware that a person has lost capacity, they can freeze an account. And that can also be freezing a joint account as well. Um, So again, I think it's having that discussion with the parents in this example, explain the pros of the power of attorney. And it's the, yes, you may not think it's needed. I'm dealing with things for you. But actually, it would be so much better if I have a piece of paper or a wad of papers in the power of attorney's instance to wave at that bank and Mm -hmm. to say, I've got the authority, I can deal with this, please let me, so that no issues arise. Because again, what you don't want to do is be doing this, hoping it's all going okay, and suddenly that authority stops. And then you hear, again, we're more than happy to come out to have a chat. There's a lot of really useful information if you look online for Office of the Public Guardian, that's the government office that sort of controls, looks after lasting powers of attorney. Lots of information that can be read, downloaded, printed, if you've got lots of paper, I think, in your printer. <laughs> but again, that might be useful to then go through with, you know, relatives who are reluctant to make powers of attorney. I think the reluctance stems around, it means they can't then deal with things. Yes. But I think hopefully with what we've spoken about today, and again, with some of the information, it's clear they don't lose control. It's there to help and assist them if they need that now or indeed if they need it in the future. So Shelley, you've mentioned how important it is to have power of attorney. Um, How would someone go about gaining power of attorney or can they do it online or... Yeah, a solicitor. Absolutely. So they can um, obtain and prepare a power of attorney themselves. So again, if you're looking on the Office of the Public Guardian, there's good information on there. I am aware that they are looking, if they haven't already, bringing in to doing an online power of attorney. Again, that's things, various pros and cons to that. Again, making sure that nobody's been influenced or forced into making a power of attorney. But certainly it is something that you can do yourself. Um, of course, we can assist and guide any professional advisor who deals with powers of attorney can assist. Obviously, there's our cost for doing so. 
But one thing I would say, and again, when we spoke earlier for the last podcast about wills, was the importance of getting professional advice to ensure that the document's prepared correctly. The lasting power of attorney has got to be signed and completed in a very strict order. Um, And also, if there could be any potential problems, again, it's always better to get that professional advice so you know the document's been prepared correctly. Somebody's assessed the capacity of the person, that they understand what they're doing. And also, as part of the lasting power of attorney, it's necessary what's called a certificate provider to sign the document to sign to say that they know the donor, they've met with them, they've gone through it, they believe that they understand it. And again, quite often, we will act as a certificate provider for mm. a donor. So again, you've got a professional signing off the power of attorney to say that in their opinion, they believe the person understood what they were doing and they had no concerns in relation to it. So absolutely, speak to a solicitor, a professional advisor. It is something you can do yourself, but just make sure that you follow the instructions and that everything's completed correctly. Yeah, and I know that, there, again, there is a backlog, isn't there, of all, of all these things? Of course. So as I mentioned earlier, the last power of attorney must be registered before it can be used. Again, if you're looking at preparing it and putting it in a drawer, less of an issue Sometimes we're having to try and get it registered as soon as possible or it's needed as soon as possible. But at the moment, the the Office of the Public Guardian are taking about five to six months to register a lasting power of attorney just because of the backlog that they've got. If this is something that a carer is looking at preparing, particularly because they know somebody's going to need to start needing assistance sooner rather than later, I'd get on and start preparing the lasting power of attorney as soon as you can. Yeah, no, that, that that's great advice. And, you know, we always want to empower carers to, to be confident and to be in the best position possible. And that's what this podcast's about. Of course. In the show notes, I will put, again, the link to, to Sydney Mitchell. Thank you. I will also put um, details of how, um, if there are people want to have a look at it online and how they go about that and when our next session is, for um, if they want to come face to face and have have a chat with absolutely you. more than always more than happy you know we've done some of the face to face ones and I will always say you know here's my contact details and more than happy you know if you've got any queries give us a call mention that you're from the, that you've listened to the podcast and I'm more than happy to help and point you in the right direction as much as I possibly can and obviously if there's any carers out there that are looking to make a lasting power of attorney for themselves or they've got people who would like to make a lasting power of attorney let me know more than happy to arrange an appointment to see myself or one of my colleagues. Okay. Thank you very much, Shelley. Thanks, Michelle.